0: I really like that song, by the way, for a couple of reasons. It scratches my country itch. I am a little bit country, like Donny Osmond, Um, so that's easy on the ears. But I really love the words of that song. It's from a group called City Alight, uh, a church in Australia that have put two albums now out of just modern hymns for the church to sing. But I love that song. It's a song of uh, reassurance. That's that's sort of the, the function of that song, different songs that we sing as a church sort of help us do different things that we need. And we need songs of reassurance week after week as we gather, don't we? You know, both Ephesians and Colossians, Paul says that we are to speak to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Yes, we're singing to God, but we're also singing to one another. And week after week, we come in and we sing songs like that. The line this morning in particular um, that I love is, uh, no trial has come beyond your hand. No step I walk beyond your plan. It's a reminder to one another that God is in control. He is sovereign. He has purposes. And the path might be dark outside my view. Can you relate to that? Feel like right now I can see this much, God, and there's so much that I don't know, don't understand about what you're up to. Um, Still, all my ways are known to you. And I love the two things that we pray at the end of that song. We ask God to help us see two things. And I like that we sing both. One, open my eyes that I can see that you've made these ways for me. So help me, God, to, to see and trust that this is not outside your control, but you have plans. But also, open up my eyes that I might see that you, my God, will walk with me. So not just help me understand that you are big and sovereign and in control, but also, God, that you're near and a comfort to me and your presence goes with me even though it's dark outside my view. What a great song to sing. Anyway, we, should, we need to sing that more frequently here. Um, and it's very appropriate, given where we're at right here in Genesis 15, because Abraham, as we're going to see, is in a place where he believes, but he wants some reassurance. He's got some unbelief mixed in as well. So Turn to Genesis 15. Last week, if you were here, Eric preached the first half, and, and then he at one point got carried away and wished that I would blow out my knee with a half marathon that I was running <laughs> so that he could run this. I heard, I listened to the sermon when I was gone. He said he wanted to preach this half too, and he hoped I blew something out while I was running. I'm here on my own two feet. Didn't even use the rail to get up here, by the way. <laughs> my wife does not like... Uh, being drawn attention to in a crowd. Otherwise, she would have raised her phone to say, I just got a text from him with a picture. He's at the finish line. So anyway, so I did. I finished on my own two feet. Here I am to preach. Genesis 15 turn there. I actually want to read the whole chapter, even though Eric covered the first six verses last week. It's all one scene, uh, sort of in two acts. God uh, reaffirms his promises to Abram, um, first in in what Eric preached last week, and then verses 7 to the end of the chapter, which we'll cover uh, this morning. But let me read the whole thing here. Genesis 15. After these things, that is, after this rescue of Lot by Abram that God delivers uh, him and his uh, family back into his hands from um, these powerful kings who would kidnapped them. So after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abraham said, Oh, Lord God, What will you give me? For I continue childless. The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abraham said, Behold, you've given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside, and he said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you're able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And where we pick up today, verse 7, And he, God, said to him again, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Oh, Lord God, how am I to know? How am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, and he cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs. And they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying... To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites and the Kenizzites and the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, the Jebusites. We pray. Lord, open up our eyes this morning that we might see um, your sovereign hand in the outworking of your great plans, not just in Abraham's life, uh, but the plans that you set in motion with Abraham's life and have come to completion uh, through Jesus Christ and his life and death and resurrection, and that continue on as promises for us now until the day when Jesus comes back and sets all things right and brings every last promise to fulfillment. God, give us eyes to see your sovereign hand in your timing of all these things, and God, help us to see uh, your near presence and promises to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this passage, as I've been in it, um, reminded me of a scene from Finding Nemo, of all things. Um, hang with me, but it, it did. Um, there's a scene in Finding Nemo. For those of you in 8 a.m. service, I had to really explain it because, you know, we, we don't have quite as young a crowd in the 8 a.m. service. Don't tell them I said that. But for the three of you in here who have not seen Finding Nemo, um, let me just sum it up. It's the story of a clownfish named Marlin who tends a little bit toward the pessimistic side, but he's raising his son Nemo after losing his wife, and his son Nemo gets caught by these tropical fish collectors who haul him off and sell him to a dentist in Australia. You know, your usual story. Um, (laughs) And he travels across an ocean with his sidekick Dory, who's a blue tang with short-term memory loss to rescue his son Nemo. Anyway, so here's the scene in particular in my mind is near the end. It's, it's this pivotal scene where they've gone through a ton already, all these near-death experiences, and they finally get to Sydney Harbor, and they think, that's it, we're close. This has got to be where Nemo is, only to be swallowed by a blue whale. So they're in the mouth of this whale, trapped beneath behind the baleen, and, and uh, Marlon is just sort of sinking down in despair. He's just, he's given up. And Dory is swimming around in the current saying, "wee," and, and then it gets even worse and the tongue starts angling back and the whale's trying to swallow them. And they're hanging on by these huge taste buds, which is kind of gross. And, uh, and the, the whale's making these whale sounds. And Dory, who says she can speak whale, says, I think he wants us to let go. And he says, of course he wants us to let go. He's trying to eat us and he's hanging on and holding on to Dory, who wants to let go, and, and Dory says, it's time to let go. Everything's going to be all right. So Disney, right? <laughs> Just believe, right? And, and Marlon makes sense. He says, how do you know? How do you know something bad isn't going to happen? How do you know that we are not going to die? How do you know? He's looking for a little assurance. Okay, Who's more in touch with reality in this scene? <laughs> Dory is just blissfully ignorant because she's got perpetual short-term memory loss. Marlon remembers they've almost been eaten by a shark. They've almost been eaten by an anglerfish. They've almost been blown up by uh, underwater mines. Uh, they were stung near to death by jellyfish. You can understand why he wants a little assurances here. How do you know this is going to end well? Every worldview ultimately has to answer that question. That's a profound question. In a world where lots of bad stuff happens every day, how can we know, can we know, that there's going to be a happy ending? In a world with mass shootings and brush fires and childhood cancer and dictators developing nuclear weapons to threaten the world, I mean, how do we know that this is going to end well. Well, the Christian worldview says we actually can know. Yes, there is a happy ending that God has planned, and the answer to the how question isn't Dory's, we don't, just believe. It's believe, but it's believe in something concrete. It's believe in a God who is living, personal, eternal, who created all things with a purpose, who created us to be known by him, to have relationship with him. Our faith is in a God who, even though we've rejected him, loves us and wants to bring us back to himself. It's faith in a sovereign God who is able to accomplish all that he's purposed, It's in a gracious God and a self-revealing God who has not left it a mystery of how to know him, who has spoken to us in time in human history, who's acted and actually shown up in human history visibly, personally, And he's done so, so that we might have our sin forgiven, death not be the end of the story, and we can actually have eternal life with him in a real new heavens and new earth with no sin, suffering, death, decay forever. Our faith is in something, not just a big nebulous hope for the best. When my son Levi was a little younger and we'd be watching something on TV or a movie and he couldn't figure out if it was real or fiction, he would say, "Dad, did that happen on the earth?" <laughs> in other words, is that is that real? Is that true or is that just fantasy? In the Christian worldview, our faith is not just fantasy and make believe. It's in things that actually happened on the earth, in fact, someone who happened on the earth, Jesus Christ. and Jesus calls us to let go and to entrust ourselves completely to his words of promise to us. But it's not easy, is it? Think of that man who came to Jesus in the Gospel of Mark with his demon-possessed son for healing, and he came to Jesus because he believed in who Jesus was. But he says, I believe help my unbelief. Remember, he, Jesus says, do you believe I can heal your son? And he says, yes, I believe. Or he, or he says, would you heal my son if you can? And he says, well, do you believe I can? Yes, I believe, but help my unbelief. We all have that Marlin voice at times, don't we? How can I know for sure what assurances has God given us that we can trust him? What sort of God are we trusting in here? Well, this, this passage speaks to this. Abraham felt some of this. I believe that was counted to him as righteousness, but also, Lord, help my unbelief. So in Genesis 12 through 23, we got Abraham and Sarah, and it's to this couple that God first begins to reveal his plans to one day bless all the families of the earth in these ways I was just talking about, ending with eternal life in an eternal place with an eternal God but it begins with these promises to one man to make him a great nation which means he's got to have a son, an offspring and he's got to have a place for that nation to live and so far chapters 12 13, 14 have been the events have been focused on the land part of God's promise. He's brought him and shown him the land and and made some promises to him about it and then we're here in chapter 15 and 16 forward turns and begins to focus on the the son part of it that that you are going to have a son and an heir and the offspring are going to come from him and right here in chapter 15 is this sort of pivot point and God reaffirms for him both the promise about the land and about the seed and he goes one step further than just reaffirming reiterating the promise he actually makes a vow and, and swears an oath to Abraham he makes a covenant with him here the first question Abraham had was about the seed what will you give me I'm still childless and God takes them out and shows him the stars, which I was thinking this week was a lot more stars than I can see from my backyard in La Mirada back in Abraham's day. Imagine how many stars he saw looking out in the desert. And, uh, and God says, if you can even number those, that's, that's what your descendants are going to be like. He gives them this visual. Abraham, throughout your life, every night when you look up at those stars, I want you to remember my word of promise to you that your offspring are going to number like that. But now in the second section, God makes another I am statement, verse 7. He says, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And again, Abram asks a question for reassurance. He says, verse 8, how am I to know that I'll possess it? How am I to know? God is so kind. He doesn't just say, see verse 7. I mean, if you were God, honestly, I am the Lord who brought you out of that land to give you this land. But how am I to know? I just told you. I am the Lord who brought you to this land to possess. But God doesn't say that. He condescends and he understands his unbelief and he wants to help him. He wants Abram to be sure. And so he doesn't just say, see verse seven. He says, bring me these, these, these animals here. And verse nine as far as we're told, he doesn't say to Abram what to do with them. He just says, Bring me these things. And verse 10, Abram seems to know already. He all, sees, oh, I see where you're going with this, God. Verse 10 says, He brought him all these, and he cut them in half, and he laid each half over against the other. He didn't cut the birds in half. Apparently, they were too small, so they put one on either side. And he, he, he sets the stage here, Abraham does, not as a sacrifice, but as, um, as sort of elements for a treaty. It was a custom. In his time, if someone was going to make a promise to another party and wanted to give a guarantee and sort of swear an oath by his word to, to, to firm up his... They'd cut an animal in half. Brutal. And they'd walk through the middle en- enacting the consequences that they were saying, may this fall upon me in my head if I fail to keep my word. That's pretty serious. That's more than stick a needle in my... Di- I hope to die, Right? It's, it's saying, may it be to me like this. And so he, it, it, God says, bring these things. And he goes, oh, I see. And he, he cuts them, lays them out. And then he sits there and he's waiting for God. I wonder what God's going to ask me to agree to. I've asked for a guarantee. So maybe he assumes God is going to call him to make some sort of vow or promise or agreement. And, and, and then Abraham can know because we've sort of sealed the deal. So he sits here and he waits. In verse 12, he falls into a deep sleep and dreadful great darkness Falls upon him and God speaks. And the first three words here in verse 13 are know for certain. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain. What God's about to say and what God's about to do and show Abram is so that he might know for certain. He wants to help Abram's unbelief, he wants him to have uh, a certainty about these problems. And so he tells him some things and then he shows him just how certain Abram can be in what he's just said. So, outline, four things here I want us to see that God wanted Abraham to know for certain. By the way, I'm going to claim, I heard also in Eric's sermon last week, sometimes I'm going to say Abraham, sometimes I'm going to say Abram, get over it. We're talking about the same man, so I've already done it a couple of times. So here we go. Four things God had want, wanted Abram to know for certain. First thing, I will keep my promises despite all appearances to the contrary. I want you to know for certain that even when it looks like I've forgotten, I haven't, I will be faithful. Look at verse 13. The first thing he wants him to know for certain is not good news for a man who's asking, how can I know my offspring will have the land? He says, know for certain your offspring first will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs and they will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. You know, if, if you've grown up in the church or grown up with these stories, again, they can be so familiar. Yeah, I know, 400 years, and then the Exodus, and then they sort of move along. But again, 400 years, that's a long time. That's basically our American history. Yesterday, I was talking about this with Ralph Wagonette, and he said, imagine in 1620 when the pilgrims landed at the Mayflower, them being told, well, there's going to be four, uh, the next 400 years of slavery until Facebook is a thing. <laughs> that's a lot of time. And he says to Abram in advance, listen, I will keep my promises despite 400 years where it's going to look like I've forgotten. But the Lord wasn't absent tending the business elsewhere during those 400 years. I'll come check back on you, Israel. Uh, we know later from things he said, that God says that his eye never left Israel. Listen to this, Exodus 2, as those years were coming to an end, God was about to deliver and bring judgment on Egypt. It says during those many days the king of Egypt died. People of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. I love that last two words. God knew. He didn't remember the way I remember I left the grill on halfway through dinner. I do this all the time. Cook something in the backyard. My my daughter, Lily Mae, will be quick to attest. And uh, after I pull the meat off the grill, I crank it up to burn all the leftover stuff. And I take it in. And it's usually 15 minutes into dinner. And Lily says, did you turn the grill off? And I go running outside. And it's 800 degrees. And it's a grease fire. No, God didn't all of a sudden go, oh, my gosh. Covenant with Abraham. No. He says he remembered, he saw the people of Israel. God knew. He knew in advance. He told Abram this was going to happen. He'd seen every tear. He'd heard every groan. He'd witnessed all the oppression and injustice. He had counted it up because in the next verse he says, he is going to bring judgment on that nation who enslaves them. God knew. Just want to pause. I don't know, Christian, what makes you feel in your life right now maybe like God has forgotten his promises to you, like his attention is just somewhere else more important, but it's not. God knows. He knows when you feel like he's forgetting his promises and he hasn't forgotten them. That's what he says to Abram I want you to know, even when it looks like I've forgotten, I will be faithful. So he tells Abram it's going to look bad, but then verse 14, he says, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward, they will come out with great possessions. And 16, first part of 16, and they will come back here in the fourth generation. And boy, did God ever put the judgment on Egypt when it finally went down sends moses to pharaoh pharaoh hardens himself and god pours out plague after plague on uh, pharaoh and the nation of egypt until he finally relents and lets god's people go and then even when pharaoh changes his mind god wipes out pharaoh's army at the red sea and leads his people every last one through on dry ground heading to a promised land and with riches just like he said when the the time came and the people were getting ready to leave and God was saying, here we go. It says he instructed each woman to ask of her neighbors, their Egyptian neighbors, and any woman who lives in your house for silver and gold and jewelry clothing. Just ask them for all their expensive jewelry and clothing. Guess what? They're going to give them to you, God says, and you will put them on your sons and your daughters so you shall plunder the Egyptians. I don't know if I ever noticed that line. You're going to put all this on your sons and daughters. Picture them all running out, and the kids have got all these layers of clothing and jewelry on. Come on, come on, come on. And they're wearing all the riches that, they, that God has given them, uh, possessions, and they head out following the Lord. So that's the first thing God wants Abraham to know for certain. Um, it may look to you as if I've forgotten, but I have not. I will keep my promises. Second thing, verse 15, I will keep my promises even though you won't see it in your lifetime, Abraham. Look at what it says. As for you, Abraham, I've told you about your offspring, but for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and you'll be buried in a good old age. Only property that Abraham would ever own in the land was the burial plot he and Sarah were laid in. Other than that, it was just tents. He lived in tents um, as sojourners in the land of promise. And there's something I think that, that, that should be reassuring for Abraham to hear God say, Abraham, this is, I am doing something much bigger than you. When he says, you're playing a part, but you're, you're, you're gonna go to your grave. You're gonna die in a good old age. And you won't have seen it all yet, but this is something much bigger than you. There's something reassuring about being reminded of that, right? God has been at work long before Abraham. He'll be at work long after Abraham. So Abraham, trust me. I 'll be faithful to my promises, even though and, and Hebrews 11 says of Abraham and, and others like Abraham in the Old Testament who lived by faith, it says this: He would die in faith, not having received the things promised, OK, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. It's not that God didn't care about Abram. He gave him a glimpse. And he even said, I'm going to bless your life. You're going to die in, in peace in a good old age. Uh, but you won't see the whole, the whole yet, God, or of Abraham. Second thing, I will keep my promise, even though you won't see it in your lifetime. Number three, my timing is not without reason. My delay, the 400 years, the affliction, it is not arbitrary. I have reasons. And he even gives Abraham one of those reasons. I don't think that's the only reason, but it is one. Look at the end of verse 16. He says, They will come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Amorites are one of those wicked nations in the land of Canaan. Sometimes Amorites is just shorthand for all of those wicked nations in there, but he says that their, their sin's not yet complete. God doesn't always tell us what he's up to when things don't look the way we we would expect, but sometimes he does. And here he says to Abram, one of the reasons why I'm gonna allow all this time to go by is Israel's not the only people I'm dealing with. I'm also dealing with these, these other Canaanite nations. God has plans for them. And he says their sin's not yet complete. And it's worth stopping and thinking what that exactly means and what that can't mean. Here's what I don't think it can mean. I don't think it can mean they haven't sinned enough yet to deserve my judgment. It can't mean that. Romans 6 says the wages of sin is death. Not a so much sin, but sin. James 2.10 says to break God's law in even one point is to be guilty of the whole of it. To rebel against a perfect holy God who created us deserves his wrathful judgment. End of story doesn't need 400 years of that to then earn it and warrant it. Otherwise, God wouldn't have been fair. So it can't mean that. They just haven't sinned enough. In fact, when you read, like in Leviticus 18, spells out some of the sins that these nations were known for, the word abominations that God uses is the right word. These are things that should elicit disgust and hatred Leviticus 18 lists 12 variations of incest and adultery and child sacrifice and other perversions I'm not going to name here. You can just go read for yourself. And when you hear then, thinking of that, God say, The sin of the Amorites is not yet complete. What does God mean by that? I think he means something like this I have not yet shown all the grace I intend to show yet. more than any other sort of name that God says of himself through the Old Testament, is this, I am the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger. When we hear that phrase, slow to anger, is it informed by 400 plus years of the sins of the Amorites until it's complete? God really wants us to understand what he means by slow to anger. That little phrase has two implications for us this morning. I just want to, as a side note, first is this, as long as God withholds his just judgment for you, for your sin, there is time to repent. That's what the Bible says. If you're here this morning and you don't know about this Jesus, you're not sure, you haven't come to a point of saying, I know that I answer to the God who made me, and I think if I was to stand before him, I don't have a leg to stand on. I know my heart, I know the things I've done and said in my life and I'm ashamed, that I'm ashamed of and I couldn't stand before a holy God. But you have not yet come to a point of repenting of that sin, turning from it to God for forgiveness. If you have not believed in Jesus and you're breathing this morning alive in the room, then your sin is not yet complete, praise God. The fact that Jesus hasn't returned and, and brought final judgment and we're here right now is a sign that God is patient and showing kindness and giving you time to respond to him in the pro- an appropriate way. That's the good news of the gospel. Jesus came as a ransom to lay his life down and be treated by the same consequences that your sin deserves so that you might then be offered forgiveness and life with God forever on his account. And the fact that you're here breathing this morning to hear me say that to you and invite you to do that, to plead with you to do that is a sign of God's kindness. Pray this morning. Ask the Lord to forgive your sins in Jesus' name. Turn from them. Say, God, I want you to make me new. I don't understand how that all works yet, but Lord, I want to turn and I want to yield to you. Because the other sobering implication of that little phrase, the sins of the Amorites is not yet complete, is not yet means that there will come a time where God will say, it is now complete. And it did come for the Amorites. And it will come for each person, whether it's at the day you die or the day Jesus returns. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Why would you refuse him? So after telling Abram these things that my timeline is not without reason I am displaying my grace and my patience here this is a sign of my mercy even though this is going to be a hard season for Israel the last thing he wants to know for, for certain Abram to know for certain he shows him verse 17 the last thing is this Abram this is all on me this is all on me is what God wants him to know look at verse 17 when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces of the animals that had been laid out. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. Abraham is shown a manifestation of God's presence so that he could see and I mean picture the. The dark blackness of nighttime in the desert. And all of a sudden, <clears throat> this flaming torch and this, this smoking fire pot. These two images that are so similar, I think, to later when God actually leads the people out and shows him that his presence goes with them for protection and guidance. This pillar of cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. Abraham sees these similar images here appear in the darkness and pass through the pieces. And what's conspicuously absent from this ceremony is Abraham... He's just watching. Imagine he was sitting there waiting, okay, what am I going to play in this? What promise am I going to have to make to secure God's promise, his word? And it's nothing. God alone passes through the pieces. In doing so, he makes a covenant. He swears to Abram, may it be to me the eternal God who can never die. May it be to me, as you have seen here, if I fail to keep my promise. It's as if God is saying, it's as impossible that I would ever break my word as it is impossible that I would ever cease to exist. You can count on it. I promise. And he makes a covenant. And this covenant was not like the one that God later makes with Israel through Moses when they become a nation. That one had some conditions with it. Said to the nation, here's my law. If you walk in my ways and you live by my law, I will bless you as a nation. But I want all the other nations to know that your God is a holy God. So if you leave my law and you break my law and you go in your own way, I will not bless you. This covenant is not like this. This is a one-sided covenant. God said, this is all on me. The promise to make you a great nation and give you land and bless all the families of the earth, that's all on me, God says. And he wanted that fiery image from that ceremony to burn into Abram's memory so that throughout his life, he would remember, my offspring will possess this land. I will get a son. I will become a great nation. All the families of the earth will be blessed. This is all on God. He's promised. So the question is, now you can see why that's an encouragement, how that was an assurance to Abram, but how does this all come to encourage us this morning? We're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper here. When the promised seed finally came, not Isaac, but the one finally that God was going to send to bless all the nations, Jesus, surprise, there was a new covenant God had in mind all along that Jesus was going to institute. And unlike the the covenant with Israel just for the, the, the sons and daughters of Abraham, this covenant is one for every tribe and tongue and nation. And it's a covenant in Jesus' blood. And when Jesus instituted that new covenant, he did it with a ceremony. Pretty humble crowd. His 12 disciples gathered in an upper room for one last Passover before he went to the cross. And he took bread from the table and the cup, and when he'd taken the bread, he broke it and he gave thanks and he said, this is my body which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. New covenant, Jesus says. And here's a ceremony to to seal the covenant. And what is the ceremony depicting? That Jesus is about to go pass through the pieces alone. It's a covenant in his blood that's bought with his body being given. In fact, John's gospel lets us in on one other visual Jesus did at that dinner. Before this, he got up and he washed all the disciples' feet, one by one, like a servant. And remember, if he gets to Peter and Peter says, No, you will not wash my feet, Lord. And he says to Peter, If I don't wash your feet, then uh, you can have no share in me. In other words, Peter, that's not how this covenant works. The way this works, it's all on me. I serve you, I cleanse you, I wash you. It's all on me, Jesus says. And what I'm about to go do at the cross. With our Reformation Conference coming up, um, I've been thinking about this question from the Heidelberg Catechism. Catechism is just a teaching tool with questions and answers to help us remember and understand biblical truth. And question 60 is a great one. How are you righteous before God? Answer, only by true faith in Jesus Christ. Although my conscience accuses me that I've grievously sinned against all God's commandments and have never kept any of them and that I'm still inclined to all evil, yet God, without any merit of my own, out of mere grace imputes to me the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. Keeps going. And he grants these to me as if I had never had nor committed any sin. And as if, even more, I myself had accomplished all the obedience which Christ has rendered for me. If only I accept this gift with a believing heart. That is all on Jesus. That's this new covenant. And that's what this meal is a picture of as we take it. How can we know for certain that God has a good ending in store for us? In Romans he says, He, it says, he who did not give, uh, spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not then also with him graciously give us all things? How can we know for certain that there's a happy ending to the story, eternal life with God? We look to the cross. This is all my hope and peace, nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. So we're about to take this and participate. This is the beauty. Not only did Jesus enact this ceremony to, to usher in this new covenant, but he said to his disciples, I want you to keep enacting this ceremony. You don't have to pass through pieces anymore. You can go to this ceremony. And every time, when you gather regularly as the church, I want you to enact this again and again as a reminder so that you might know even more certainly that it's all on me. Every promise that God makes is yes for us in Christ. So servers, if you're gonna serve this uh, service, come on up and grab these and come to different stations. A couple things I wanna say as we take uh, the Lord's Supper. This ceremony is for believers In Jesus, those who have trusted in Christ alone for salvation and they've been baptized into his name. Doesn't matter whether you're a member here at Grace or whether you're visiting from another church or another area. If you are trusting in Christ alone, you are welcome to come forward and and partake again in this ceremony of assurance of what Jesus has done for us. If that's not you, I want to ask you to refrain and watch. and Take this in. Consider what I've been saying. Consider what we're talking about. And maybe if you're wondering, even pray. Maybe you've never prayed before, but say, God, if you are there, help me understand. Help me understand that that Jesus, is what he's done for me and why I need this. And and Lord, open my eyes. If you have young children who aren't yet ready to to participate in Lord's Supper, have them come forward with you. You could ask any of the servers to just pause and pray for them, and they will. Um, If you are a believer, but right now in your life, there is sin that is unrepentant, that you are clinging to, and you know it. Paul would also warn you that to come forward and take this, uh, participate in this is in an unworthy manner. It's actually eating and drinking judgment on yourself, refusing to turn from your sin, but then coming forward and acting as if nothing's wrong. What he'd call you to do is renounce that sin, get out of your chair, and run back to the cross. But if that's not where your heart is, I want to ask you to refrain. And pray, Lord, help me. Finally, if, if for, uh, for gluten allergies, all the way on the far side of the sanctuary there, there's a station that, that doesn't have that. Uh, but I would like to pray and then invite you up in your own timing to come to any one of these stations. You'll take the bread and they'll say, the server will say Christ's body was given for you. And you'll dip it in the cup and they'll say Christ's blood was shed for you. And you can take that there, take it back to your seat, you can give thanks. I I encourage you, don't keep your eyes closed the whole time. This is in part designed for us to see, see the picture of all God's redeemed children coming forward washed with the same blood. Open your eyes, give thanks for the folks that you see, uh, your brothers and sisters as we take this. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for passing through the pieces alone. Thank you for Gethsemane, for surrendering your will uh, to the Father's will and giving your life as a ransom for us. Thank you for uh, our hope that comes through shed blood for forgiveness of sins. Thank you for your Holy Spirit now that helps us walk in new life. Uh, Lord, I pray this morning as we take this bread and this cup again, that we would leave this place this morning certain, of your love for us that nothing can separate us from, that we can be sure, sure of it, like we sang. We thank you.